Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. With tension high in Capernaum, Jesus returns home to Nazareth only to ratchet the tension up even higher. And for some reason, Jesus is unable to do miracles there. Yeah, that's what Mark says. He could do no miracles in his own hometown. Why is that? What keeps Jesus from doing miracles? And how can I keep Jesus actually doing miracles in my life? Tension had been really high at Capernaum. And Jesus traveled home. His hometown wasn't Capernaum. His hometown was what? What? Nazareth. Jesus is from Nazareth. And so he decides to travel home. I don't know if he traveled home because the tension was high, but he definitely left the tension. I mean, you know, the crowds had been following him everywhere, pressing in all around him. And no matter what he did, he couldn't get anything done, it seemed like, other than just ministering to people. Couldn't eat, couldn't hardly sleep because of so much ministry being done. And not only that, but the religious leaders decided they hated him. And they were pressing in harder and harder, pushing back on him. And in fact, they had decided to start plotting to kill Jesus there in Capernaum. So the tension was really high. And Jesus and his disciples, they leave that town and they head over toward his hometown of Nazareth. Nothing like going home, right? I mean, maybe he wanted to get home and have a home-cooked meal. And maybe he wanted to catch up with his mom, his brothers, his sisters. Um, maybe he just wanted to, to get some, you know, home time, sleep in his own bed and feel like home again. So he goes home. And then later, on the Sabbath day, Jesus does what he always does. Wherever he is, he goes to the synagogue. And that's where it happened. Yeah, something really majorly changed around Jesus on the Sabbath in the synagogue in Nazareth. Yeah, a major flip took place. He goes there and, you know, he's... He's reading from the scroll and teaching like he always does in every synagogue on every Sabbath. But then Mark tells us in verse 2 of chapter 6, he says, Many who heard him were amazed. And they asked, Where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Now, he had performed no miracles at this point in Nazareth so far, but they knew the stories. They had heard the stories of what Jesus was doing in all the other villages around Galilee. And so Jesus is there teaching, and they're astonished, right? Everywhere he goes, it's the same, it's the same response as everywhere. Everyone's amazed at Jesus's authority. What's the word for authority here? His exousia, that's right, his divine supernatural authority. Everyone's astonished and amazed at him. This doesn't look like anything changes. But then look at the very next sentence. It's like night and day. It says this, Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were astonished and amazed? No. They were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. 
Yeah, so the first blank on your page is this, something flipped on Jesus. Something flipped. They started off being amazed at him and welcoming him, but then something flipped, and now all of a sudden they're mad at him. They scoff and they refuse to believe. What in the world could have happened? All these people knew Jesus. Probably most of the people in the room had grown up with Jesus, right? I mean, they probably went to school together. You know, they played on the hillside together outside of town. Uh, Most of them, probably most of the people in the room had been to his dad's funeral. They knew Jesus, and they should have been excited, you know. Our small town boy hits it big, and now he's come home. We should have a parade. We should throw a party. We should do a big deal. But all of a sudden, they flip from loving him to seemingly hating him. His childhood friends suddenly turning against him, and all of a sudden, Jesus finds himself the bad guy in his own hometown. What happened between verses 2 and 3? Well, Mark clearly doesn't tell us because that's what Mark does. He's just skimming through the story to get to the point, right? But Luke is a little bit different, and Luke gives us some really clear insight, and he fills in this gap between verse 2 and 3 to tell us exactly why this flip took place. So let's skip over and let's look for a minute in Luke's account of this story in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke 4, 16, here's what he says. He, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So Luke lays out the picture for us. Jesus travels to Nazareth. So as we look at the map again, it's been a while since we've looked at the map. Uh, Here's Israel over here, just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. Most of Jesus' ministry up here in Galilee, you can see Jerusalem down here in the southern part of the country. Israel kind of extends down in a V below this, but when you're watching the headlines right now, the attacks in Israel that are coming from the Gaza Strip, Gaza is right over here. This little strip of land right over here in this area is a highly contested area. The people that live in this little strip pretty much all believe that the Jewish people, the Israelites, are illegally, unlawfully, immorally uh, occupying their land. Now, they got nothing to base that on. There's no genealogical evidence. There's no historical evidence that that's true. But that's what they believe. They believe it's their land, rightfully their land, even though the UN has said differently since 1947. So uh, remember, remember, Israel was a nation all the way through the Roman occupation up until 70 AD. Right after Jesus came and went, there was a Jewish revolt, and the Romans got tired of it, and they obliterated Israel. They expelled a lot of the Jews from the area, and Israel ceased being a nation, much like was prophesied. Right? It no longer was the central focal point for the world to worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Because Jesus became the focal point 
of worshiping in spirit and in truth. So we don't need Israel anymore. We don't need Jerusalem anymore. We don't need the temple anymore. So all that went away, and Israel was not a nation at all. There was no such nation, geographical nation, called Israel for 2,000 years, all the way up until 1948, right after World War II. The Holocaust had just happened, and all the nations agreed, man, the Jews need their own, their own home you know, to just some way to pay him back for what just happened. And so they reestablished Israel as a nation. And uh, so they, they all began to come back. And boy, what a pivotal moment in prophecy, you know, because Ezekiel tells us that all of the people will return to the land from where all they've been scattered, and then the end will come. Huge deal. I mean, just the reestablishing of Israel puts us squarely in the end times. Amen. Praise the Lord. We're in the end times. We're in the end times. You hear me? We're in the end times. So your three that you're praying for, they need to know Jesus because he could come back at any moment. All right? So, all right, that's tangent, not on my script. So we're going to zoom into the Sea of Galilee area. This is Galilee, and Jesus has been doing ministry in and around Capernaum. He's been traveling all over Galilee, actually, preaching in all of the uh, little local villages even across the sea in the region of the Gerasenes. But now he travels back home to Nazareth. When you're coming from the airport to go to Capernaum and stay in that region, like we do when we're going over there, we usually stay actually somewhere between Tiberias, right about here, and Capernaum. Uh, we stay in that general area on the Sea of Galilee. You have to drive right past Nazareth to get there. It was true in that day, too. You had to go right past. There was a major trade route that went nearby there. Nazareth was kind of built on the back side of that hill, on the north side of that hill, and it wasn't an important place. I mean, nobody really knew much of anything about Nazareth. In fact, you find no writings in any historical literature, either biblical or extra-biblical at all, about Nazareth up until this time because nobody cared. It's just a little bitty small backwoods town. It's up in the hills, out of the way, at the most about 500 people living there at the time of Christ. So it's just a little bitty small town where everybody knows everybody. It's the elegy of Israel is what it is. All right, so it's a little bitty, non-important backwater town, literally on the north side, on the back side of the hill here that Jesus is returning to. And so it says that he goes there, and then on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue. So, uh, oh, by the way, here's a picture of Nazareth. Let me just show you. So we stood on the hill um, looking south at the back side of that hill. It's the same hill, and that's that ridge that you saw on the map just a minute ago. And uh, today, Nazareth is kind of a big area. Um, it, it was kind of vacated for a while, then they resettled it, and now <coughs> it's grown to be a pretty sizable town and Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth so um, you can't really make it out in the picture but Fote my friend there showed me from this hillside that right over here in this area you can see in fact this might be it right here you can see a synagogue there today built on the ruins of the one that was there in Jesus's day so that synagogue is still in the same place today as it was right there on the hillside as it was in Jesus' day. So Jesus goes to the synagogue there on the Sabbath day, and when you go to the synagogue, you pretty much know what to expect. 
uh, synagogue is like church. They kind of have the same basic rhythm of everything that they do each time. So they go into the building, and uh, it's not kind of, a, you know, normally churches are either kind of fan-shaped in their main auditorium or they're kind of rectangular. A synagogue is square-ish. Uh, it may be octagon-ish. And um, instead of somebody at the front of the room leading everyone else, uh, the leader would stand in the center of the room, and everybody else would line the walls all around them. And so the crowd surrounds the person in the middle. They come in, and uh, they would pray the Shema together. They would recite the Shema. It's prayer from Deuteronomy. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So they would pray that together, and then they would sing a song. And then what would happen is the either the local rabbi would read from the scroll and comment, preach, or uh, a, a traveling rabbi would be in town and would read and preach, or an honored guest would be asked to read and to expound upon the scriptures. And so that's, I'm sure, exactly what happened. They sang the song, and then Jesus, standing in the middle, he reads from the scroll, and then they would close the scroll and return it to the attendant, as you'll see Jesus doing, and then the teacher would sit down in line with everybody else and would teach from a seated position. Afterwards, they would sing another song and pray and be dismissed. So it wasn't too different from what we're used to here. And Jesus was used to being in a synagogue, and he was used to preaching, right? He would travel around, and he would preach the same message everywhere he went. This is the way rabbis worked in Jesus' day. Each rabbi had their own message, their own Holy Spirit, they believed, inspired message that they had been given. We might say it's their dissertation, and they would go and deliver their focal point, their interpretation of a specific passage or the message that they feel like they've been given, uh, and they would bring that wherever they went and teach it everywhere. The rabbis called this their this special message, their yoke. And so when they're teaching, they are giving you their yoke. Some yokes are heavy and some yokes are light. So when Jesus is talking about the yoke, that's what he's talking about, uh, the rabbis giving their message. And Jesus' yoke is different from everyone else's. He says that you may have heard some heavy ones, some judgmental ones, some bad news ones. He says, my message, my yoke is light. And here it is. It's in Mark 1. Mark tells us what it is. He says this, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near repent of your sins and believe in the good news believe the good news this is jesus's yoke it's his message his whole purpose so far has been to travel around and to preach and prove he wants to get this message out there that the kingdom of god is near so repent turn to god he wants to bring the good news because all of the jewish people were very well acquainted with the bad news you know, they really, really understood that even though God had made all of us in his image to look like him, act like him, talk like him, and to represent him in this world, that we had rebelled against his design. Excuse me, right? Because God is good, but we rebelled against his goodness. We agreed with the accuser that God wasn't really worthy of being God and that we could make better gods than him. 
And so we rebelled against him, against everything good, and we became evil, right? We decided that we could be better gods, so we became traitors against the one true king. And the wages of our traitorous sin is death. We all have the, the punishment of death coming because we are sinners. God's anger builds at the rebellious traitor and that's all of us and that's the bad news and we all know the bad news but the good news is that God loves us so much that he sends his chosen one he sends the Messiah to come and deliver his people from their sin to rescue them and to restore them to make them right with God the Messiah God in the flesh comes and he sacrifices his life on the cross and he pays the penalty that we Owed. He had no sin of his own to pay for. So he dies in our place. He pays off our debt to the king and he goes to the grave and he rises three days later, leaving all of our sin in that grave. And now he brings life to us so that we can live in fellowship with God and be recognized by him as being innocent and clean, no longer carrying that traitorous rebellious sin that should deserve an amen right there that's what Jesus does on our behalf and so he's preaching that that kingdom of God that he's bringing is near so repent but today on this particular Sabbath Jesus stands in his own childhood synagogue there in his hometown of Nazareth among friends and family and Let's look at what Luke tells us happens next. In verse 17, it says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. Now, I got to believe that there's no way that this could possibly be a coincidence. Because the scroll of Isaiah isn't just, you know, containing prophecies about the Messiah. It's like the key prophecies about the Messiah. The main ones are right there in Isaiah. Isaiah is the prophet of the Messiah. And so I cannot believe that this was just a coincidence. I don't know if it was prearranged. I don't know if it was you know, today's Isaiah Day in the synagogue. We have it on the calendar. Every year we do it, so Jesus wanted to be there for that. I don't know. I don't know what the deal was, but I do believe the Holy Spirit lined it up so that this would be the scroll put into Jesus' hands on this day. So Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he found the place where it was written. And, and here's the words that Jesus reads to the people. Ready? It says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the He has sent me to proclaim liberty for the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, this is just not a prophecy about the Messiah. These are the words of of the Messiah. This is literally the messianic arrival statement. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah the prophet said when the Messiah gets here, he will stand and say these words. And so Jesus in the synagogue is announcing the arrival of the Messiah. And you better believe there was tension in the room. 
Everybody there knew full well the meaning of this passage. And they heard the stories of Jesus traveling and teaching and doing miracle after miracle. And so you better believe there was tension in the room. And I don't think it was good tension. Because they knew this guy. They knew Jesus. They grew up with him. And they knew he was going around doing all these things. But he didn't go on to seminary. He didn't study under some famous rabbi. He didn't, I mean, he just finished elementary school. And this is the guy, this is the guy I hired to do the addition on my house. Right? This is the guy I hired to make me a kitchen table. I, I, are you kidding me? So he's been doing all this stuff. There's a lot of buzz about Jesus. And now he reads this statement. You got to be kidding me. So you, you better believe everybody was on the edge of their seat. What is he going to say next? Tension in the room. And verse 20 says this, that he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant. And then he sat down and look at this. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Tension in the room. And here's what he said to them next. In, in my mind, in my mind, it gets real quiet. Silence in the room. And it's in that quiet, apprehensive moment. He says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah said that the Messiah would utter these words, and I just did. There's no other way to interpret what Jesus is saying here. The next blank on your page is that Jesus asserts himself as the Messiah. This is contrary to everything we've seen him doing so far. So far, whenever he heals somebody, what does he do? He's like, oh, you can see me. Shh, keep it quiet. Don't, shh, don't tell anybody. Or somebody, you know, he, he's a paralytic. is like, great, shh, keep it quiet. This is between me and you. Don't tell anybody, right? That's what he says over and over and over again. Keep it, keep it on the down low, just us. And is that what they do? No, they, they receive the blessing from Jesus, and the first thing they do is disobey Jesus. They go and they tell everybody they can what Jesus just did for them. So Jesus asserts himself finally. Finally, Jesus makes this assertive, bold, crazy, outrageous statement asserting himself as the Messiah. And Luke shows us the same flip that Mark shows us, but the way Luke writes it, it's a little more subtle than the way Mark shows us. Here's what Luke says in verse 22. It says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious works that were coming from his mouth, gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they started off all happy about Jesus, saying good things. But then they said, wait a minute. Well, hold on a minute. Isn't this, isn't this the son of the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? I mean, this kid, this kid used to ding-dong ditch me all the time. Are you kidding me? This kid? Uh-uh, I don't know. And the buzz about Jesus starts, and it goes negative fast, but Jesus shuts it down. Here's what he says in verse 23. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, what he's saying is, I know what you're going to say next. I know what you're going to say. Um, 
you know, I know what you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. Do what you've done in other places. We've heard the stories of the miracles, but we ain't seen any here. Come on, come on. You're the hometown boy. Show us a trick. Give us a trick. Do a magic trick or two, and then we'll see what we think about you. Sure. Come on. You're our hometown boy. We want to see something, hometown boy, because you're our boy. You're our boy. Huh. Is Jesus your boy? I mean, think about it. Is Jesus your boy? You know, I think a lot of times we get confused and we think Jesus is our boy when he's really God in the flesh, the creator God who spun all the galaxies into existence, walking around the flesh, and we don't stand in awe of that. We don't fall to our face before him. We just think he's our boy. How do you know if Jesus is your boy? I tell you how you know. It's because you don't respect him. You don't respect him enough to conduct your life in such a way that you are living in awe of him. You don't, you don't lay your life down saying, I, I want to do, I want to be whatever you want me to be. I want to surrender myself to you, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my marriage the way you call me to build my marriage. I'm going to build my finances the way you call me to build my finances. I, I, I'm going I'm to build uh, other disciples the way you call me to build disciples. I, I'm, I'm just going to sacrifice my life and do it the way you say it. That's somebody that loves and trusts and respects who is building an abiding, deep walk with Jesus. That's what that looks like, but that's not what we do. No, instead what we do is we build our lives the way in the heck that we want to build it. We want to make whatever disaster we feel like making. And then when it all comes crumbling down, we want our boy to show up and clean it up. Come on, boy, clean up my mess and then get out of the way so I can go back to making another mess. That's when Jesus is your boy. I feel like we American Christians have fallen into this trap of making Jesus our boy and not our master. You know, Paul always writes, you guys studied it in the youth group recently. He always writes and he signs into his letters. He's saying, I'm Paul, I'm a servant of Christ. And the English cleans it up. The word he actually uses, I'm a doulos of Christ. And that word doesn't mean servant, it means slave of Christ. I, I am owned by him. The word is Adonai, and it literally means Lord or owner. And I think that we think he's our boy, not our Lord. We think he's our boy, not our master. That is the definition of a hard heart. Am I, am I making sense? Am I tracking? Are you with me? So, he goes on in verse 24 to the hard-hearted. He says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. You know, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them 
was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. We read this today and go, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, I'm going to boil this all down. He's talking about hard-hearted Israel. And because they persisted in their sin, persisted in their hard-heartedness, persisted away from God, God allowed a famine to come on the land. He removed his hand of protection on them, so a famine came, and they cried out, and they were like, oh, please save us. Come on, be our boy. But they didn't want to surrender their lives to him, so he let them suffer. Instead of sending assistance to his people, the Jewish people, he went to the Gentiles. Instead of his sending his uh, assistance to the lepers because they were hard-hearted, he went to the Gentiles. What Jesus is saying to them is this. It's the next blank on your page. God moves on from hard hearts. God moves on. He's there to preach and he's there to prove. But dude, if your heart's hard, he moves on. If you want him to be your boy, he just moves on. He will not be your boy. He wants to be the Lord of your life. End of story. Amen? So verse 28, Luke tells us that when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They had the opposite response to Jesus from everyone else. In Capernaum, they were amazed and astounded. And they couldn't believe all the incredible miracles he was doing. And so they were actually starting to ask the question, could he be? Could he possibly be the Messiah? Could Jesus be the chosen one of God sent to deliver us? Could, could he be the Messiah? But the people of Nazareth asked the opposite question. They were like, no way could he be the Messiah. How could he be possibly claiming to be the Messiah? No way could this possibly be true. In fact, they were so hardcore convinced that Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah that they were ready to throw him off a cliff and kill him. But it says in verse 30, passing through their midst, he went away. Oh, I wish I could have a video of this. Because here's the crowd, angry mob, dragging Jesus to a cliffside to throw him off. Either to throw him off the cliff thinking he'll die, or it was often customary to throw him off a cliff first, then you hit him with all the big rocks, and you stone him to death. So they're ready to throw him off the cliff, but somehow in this insane, rabid, angry mob, Jesus just walks through the crowd away from the cliff. Oh, I wish I had that on video. And I wish they described it more in the Bible. But let's go back to Mark's shorter version of the story and pick it up in Mark 6, verse 4. Jesus says to them, that's the disciples, a little later, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. A prophet's not without honor. He's got honor. He's honored wherever he goes, except when he goes home. And what I find to be fascinating is the next verse and a half. Mark says this. 
Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Everywhere Jesus has gone, people have marveled at how astonishing his exousia is. But here in Nazareth, Jesus is the one marveling, marveling at their unbelief. And I got to ask the question. It says he could do no mighty work there. They were so unbelieving he could do no mighty work. So you read the story of Nazareth, and we don't know how long from the time he arrived in Nazareth until Sabbath. There's obviously a gap there, maybe a couple of days, two days, three days. We don't know. But read the story. There's no miracles there. And then afterwards, no miracles, except for, you know, some insignificant-seeming ones. He laid hands for healing, not much. In other words, there's really nothing to write home about when it comes to Nazareth. In fact, that's the next blank on your page. Nazareth has no stories to write about. So I got to ask the question, did Jesus' power just dry up in Nazareth? Okay. Is Jesus like Santa Claus in the movie Elf, where everybody has to have the Christmas spirit and sing the same song together at the same time so that Santa will have enough Christmas spirit to do what Santa does? Is that the way Jesus is? Come on, help me out. Is that the way Jesus is? Does Jesus' power depend on me? Jesus is God in the flesh. And I refuse to believe that Jesus, that somehow I can turn off the spigot of miracles in Jesus's power. I, I refuse to believe that I got that kind of control over God. So what's going on here? I started doing some research and I began to read some of what the theologians said and they resoundingly all say the same thing, that when we read this passage that he could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief, we attribute his ability to their belief level and that's the wrong way to read this. He said, they say the way that we should read this is that Jesus could do no mighty work because the people's hearts were so hard that God just withheld the miracles. Their hearts were so hard that God said, I move on from the hard-hearted. I don't abide the hard-hearted. I will not be your boy. I'm going to be Lord or I'm going to be nothing. And so Nazareth is the opposite of Capernaum. Capernaum, it's miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You know, it's, it's amazing to me. In Capernaum, I don't see anybody coming to Jesus and saying, I want to surrender my life to you. There's nobody that seems to have really what we would call saving faith in Capernaum. But they had enough. They had enough. They trusted him enough to where they were blind and they were like, I just need you to, to give me sight. And he did. They were paralyzed and got lowered down from the ceiling. So he healed. You know, they were leprous and they came and knelt before him and he said, healed. They were bleeding and they reached out and touched the fringe of his garment, healed. They might not have had much, but they gave him something to work with. Remember, Jesus is a carpenter. 
He doesn't create the wood the table is made out of. He takes the raw materials and makes it something amazing. And so in Capernaum, they gave him something to work with. They had just enough faith, and he took it, and he did amazing things with it. In Nazareth, they gave him nothing to work with. Their hearts were hard, and now there are no stories to tell in Nazareth except that they wanted to kill him. I got a shock for you, okay? This is going to amaze some of you guys, and you're probably not ready for this, so brace yourself. But I know, I am, I'm aware that the day is coming that I will no longer be here. One day, I'm going to pass on from this world. Did you know that? It's a shock, I know. And listen, I want my life, when I leave this world, I want my life to be a set of stories that are told about how good God is. I want my life to be one where I just trusted him enough. When he said, I want you to move to LJ, I know it doesn't make any sense. I know there's only three traffic lights. <laughs> Listen, he and I fought about that for a while. <laughs> I, I, know, I know there's there's nothing there and no reason there, but that's where I want you to go. I, I want it told that Steve obeyed and look what God did. You know, I, I think about I think about the time when um, we as a church didn't have a home. You know, we, we were meeting in the movie theater, then in the school, and we were getting kicked out of the school, you know, um, and we didn't have a home, and this building came available, but at a ridiculous price. It would be ridiculous by today's real estate standards. And uh, we were like, thanks, don't call us, we'll call you. And we walked away from that offer. They came to us and offered us, you know, we want you to buy the building. And we said, no, thank you. Uh, we can't afford it. But miraculously, we prayed about it, and miraculously, the price came down by two-thirds over an amazing course of, short course of time. But still, even though it came down to something that was absolutely reasonable, um, we, we had to raise. We had to raise money very abruptly to get into this building in the first place. And they said, it's going to cost you, if you're going to do this, it's going to cost you $110,000 just to get in. And we said, well, we've <laughs> never raised any money before. Our church, as a church, we've never seen $110,000 before. And they were like, yeah, but you got to come up with it real fast, like in six weeks. you got to come up with it in six weeks. And we're like, hey, you know. And so I remember, I remember it was... Um, it was the uh, end of November, beginning of December. It was the worst time of year to ever talk about raising money. And so I stood up in front of our congregation on a Sunday morning, and I said, if we're going to do this, we got to raise $110,000, and we got to do it fast. I mean, we can't do like a 24-month pledge drive. There's none of that. We got we to gotta come up with it now. Can we do that? Let's just go to God. And we prayed about it and said, God, would you please give us $110,000 somehow in the next six weeks. And we had $120,000 by that Monday. Wow. Praise the Lord. God is good. God is good. Because we trusted him and we gave him something. We stepped out on faith. People just said, I, I mean, I, I'll give. I'll, I'll give to that. And we stepped out on faith. I remember when that property up on the hill became available. I remember 
um, they came to us and said, this property just became available, and you wouldn't believe uh, this. It's beautiful. It's some of the best property in Gilmer County. You need to build a church there. Uh, you need to go look at it. And we went up and looked at it, and we were blown away, blown away by the view from that piece of property up there. And we said, it's not just the most beautiful. It's the most expensive real estate in Gilmer County, and we said, God, would you, would you please make this possible? If you want us to come, give us a sign, Lord, just give us a sign. So we started, we started doing the research, and we found out that the owner of the property went to church at the Orchard Church. And so I went to her, and I was like, you know, you're trying to sell like 60 acres. We really only need like 10. <laughs> would you be willing to subdivide that property uh, and give us the best part for really cheap, the topmost part for really cheap. And she looked at me and she said, just draw your lines where you want them on the map and we'll, we'll work a deal. So we drew lines and we said to our church, we don't know if we can do this. Uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. Uh, but the price that she's given us is unbelievable. Uh, you can't buy the bottom of the valley for this price, let alone the top of the hill. Can we do this, church? And not only did we buy 20 acres up there, but we paid it off. Own it free and clear. Praise the Lord. It's because we gave God something to work with. We gave him something. We just stepped it up and started saying, well, let's just, let's just do something because we want to see you work, God. We want, we want stories to be told, and now I'm telling stories of how good God is. So there's another one coming. There's an, you know there's another one coming. In January, we're going to start aiming full on for putting a building on that property up the hill. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so I'm telling you, uh, I wish we'd, I kind of wish we'd have started, you know, a few years ago when it should have been a ridiculously expensive building. But due to our economic situation today and the values of all that junk, it is unbelievably expensive. But it's only going to get worse. So why wait it out? You know, so uh, in January, we're going to start showing pictures. We don't have the pictures yet. But in January, we're going to start showing pictures of what we think God's calling us to do up there. And I don't know about you, but I want to give God something to work with. So my wife and I, we've already, we've already talked about this. We've already prayed about this. And we believe God's given us a number, a sacrificial number to give so that God will have something to work with. And I'm just telling you, I know what's coming next year. Next year, we're going to have more bills than we do this year. It's just the way our situation is right now. And that's okay. We're, we're going to give much, much more than we've ever give, given to anything in the past because we believe God's going to take whatever we give him and make something out of it. And so, Lord, do what you will. I, I want to be the person that says, Lord, take my life and do what you will because I want to leave this world and I want stories to be told. I don't want my life to be Nazareth. I want my life to be Capernaum. So Lord, I'm giving you my career. I'm giving you my sex life. I'm giving you my marriage. I'm giving you my kids. I don't expect you to be my boy. You are my master and I'm the pottery, you're the potter. 
you are Adonai, you are my owner, and I do what you say. Take whatever you want, it's yours, and you put your hands on it, and you make something of it. Amen? That's the life I want to live with. So I'm asking you, I'm challenging you, people. Last blank on your page. Give him something to work with. You got your three you've been praying for this year. You got three. You got three people you've been praying for, begging God to do a miracle in their life. Let them come to you, Lord. Maybe it's time to stop praying and start talking. Maybe it's time to step out in bold, insane, crazy faith and actually say, I got something I need to share with you. I just, I just, my heart is heavy and I got to share this with you. And maybe it's time for us to actually give God something to work with instead of hoping he'll magically show up and be our boy and do the miracle we hope he'll do. Huh? Give him something to work with. What are you willing to give him in your life? And what could he do when he puts his hands on it? 